Father, we bow before you this morning and thank you for your grace. We thank you there's a word for it and that the concept is living and is, is touching our hearts and transforming our lives. And all of this comes from the living word of God, a book that is dynamic and not dead. So, Lord, I pray that you will open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. And may you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the books that has impacted many believers around the world in different ages is the book Through Gates of Splendor. And it is one of my favorites. It is the story of the five missionary men who were martyred in Ecuador in January of 1956. Uh, We have a connection there because one of the men, Roger Udarian, uh, married a woman from our church. And uh, Barb is still living, I believe, now in Florida, but um, is in a retirement center. And uh, I think all the other ones have passed on. Anyhow, an amazing story as these five men went deep into the jungle to take the gospel to some villagers, the Weodani people. And they were excited because they heard that the Weodani were coming to meet them. They had flown in, landed on a narrow strip of beach, and uh, they saw that they were coming, and they were excited. So they prayed. And then they sang together this song, and I have the words on the screen for you. It is actually the fourth stanza of a song they sang just before the natives came. And by the way, the natives came, misunderstanding their intentions, killed all five of the missionaries with spears. But this is the song they sang, we rest on thee, our shield and our defender. Thine is the battle, and thine shall be the praise. When passing through the gates of pearly splendor, victors we rest with thee through endless days. And they actually sang that to the tune of Finlandia, which is known by us as Be Still My Soul. The Lord is on my side. The uh, actual title for the book comes from this stanza. You'll notice in blue, through gates of splendor. But the interesting thing about this stanza is that the word rest is used twice. The first rest, we rest on thee, our shield and our defender. That's the rest for regular Christian life. That's the rest for strength and protection. And then the second rest, when passing through the gates of pearly splendor, we rest with thee through endless days. And after singing that song, in a matter of moments, they were resting in the arms of their Savior. So what is interesting about this stanza to me is that this is exactly what we've been studying in Hebrews chapter 4. If you have your Bible, let me encourage you to turn there. Hebrews chapter 4. So the first rest is this rest in Christ, the finished work of Christ on the cross. It's the gospel rest. It's the very rest that God intended for us to have, but because of sin in the garden, 
Mankind has been plagued with death. This first rest is received when you believe. That's Hebrews 4 and verse 3. Now those who have believed have entered into that rest. It's different than the rest that he was talking about in the Old Testament with Joshua and the Hebrew people going into the land of Canaan. That would have been rest, but that was only picturing a greater rest that they were trying to recover, the original rest that God had planned for them where sins are forgiven and they're in a right relationship with their creator. So that's the first rest. We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. But the second rest has to do with heaven. And this is Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 9. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest, the first rest, trusting Christ, also rests ultimately from their labors when their work on earth is done, just when, like when God's work was done, he rested. So there is a rest now for us to enjoy when we trust Christ, and there remains a rest when all of the junk and problems, the pain and the disease of this world is gone, and we're in the perfect environment, God's home called heaven. And that's why he says in chapter 4, verse 11, therefore, Make every effort to enter that rest. And he may even be referring to heaven, but of course to get to heaven you have to first rest, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that's where we left off a couple of weeks ago. Now I want us to start with Hebrews uh, chapter four, verse 12. And we're going to notice something I think Pretty fascinating. For the author of Hebrews now, in trying to encourage people to follow Christ, is going to give them two pictures of Christ, two portraits of Christ. I like pictures. I, I think I learn more from pictures than I do from reading. But to bring the two together is extremely helpful. So let me begin reading with verse 12. For the word of God is alive and active sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, the joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight, but everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account, or as, as it says in the King James, before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. I tell you, this is something of a sober, sobering portrait, a serious picture. It is a judge with his sword. Now, we look at verse 12, and we notice, first of all, that the focus is on the Word of God, and he's been speaking the Word of God. Today, if you hear God's voice, that's his word, don't harden your heart. For the Word of God is alive, and it is active. Interesting, the word living or alive, of course, is connected with God because he is the living God. Chapter 3, don't depart from the living God. And a living God must have a living book. 
The book is alive because it is connected with the God who lives. And it means if the Bible is alive, it means it is that it is perpetually relevant. It records the past. It certainly speaks to our present and foretells what will happen in the future. Thus, its dynamic and effective quality is assured by the very nature of the book being God's word. It's living, and that's a good thing. It's also active. Very interesting Greek word here. This particular word is where we get our English word energy. It's almost a transliteration from the Greek into the English. Energy. And it means something that's effective and operative. The word of God is energetic. One Greek scholar put it this way. It is a word used of activity that produces results. Isn't that a great description of the Bible? It is alive because it comes from God pertinent to every age and, and every people group anywhere. And it is active. It is energetic. It produces the kind of ac activity that always brings results. That's why Isaiah says in Isaiah 55 that the word of God is going to come down from heaven and it will accomplish the purpose to which God sends it because it's active. And what is it living and active for? Well, as we've noticed, if you stay with the text, it is the psalm that has been quoted over and over and over again. Today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. It's a word of invitation. Today is always today. This is the mercy and grace of God. That we didn't lose today, yesterday. We have a today, today in the eternal economy of God, which means he's still inviting you to trust him today. And as long as you're alive, God still offers you today, if you hear his voice. And it's a warning. Don't harden your heart if you hear his voice. Because his voice is alive and active. And it's sharper, the scripture says. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. The Greek word for dagger is used, a short sword that often was carried in the belt and maybe under the cloak of an individual uh, as a weapon, kind of a concealed carry. Uh, but it was known to be a very effective weapon because it was hidden and it was used for many things. Sharper. The, God, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's uber sharp. It's exceptionally sharp. Why? Because it cuts not just the physical, but the spiritual. You can get any set of steak knives that you buy at midnight in a home shopping channel to cut anything physical. But this... Word of God is sharper because it cuts the spiritual. Now, maybe up to this point, and I think for a long time, I always thought of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, in a very positive way. And, and it is. 
The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The way I memorize it from the old King James. But I almost always used it in a positive context to encourage me about the promises of God. And that is all true. But look at the context. It's not about encouragement. It's about conviction. Because it says that this sharp sword penetrates even to the dividing of the soul and spirit. Now, don't take this to lead you into a trichotomy viewpoint that man is body, soul, and spirit. And here the Bible says there are two different things. No, no. In fact, I think the power is that the word of God cuts two things that are really the same. Soul and spirit are used interchangeably in the scripture, but the word can cut so deeply it goes in between, just like the the bone and the marrow are together and joined. This word cuts that deeply. Effective words are like a sharp sword. Isaiah said in chapter 49, he made my mouth like a sharpened sword, and words are cutting, right? Sticks and stones may break my bones, and words will always cut me. (laughs) That's the way it should go. Because the sticks and stones that bruise my bones, that will heal, but sometimes the cutting words never do. And this is used of Jesus in Revelation 12 when he's talking to the angel of the church of Pergamos. These are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And so it's the word of God and the word of Christ that penetrates deep down into the regions of the real us, the soul and the spirit. It discerns our heart thoughts and our motives. It has the power to penetrate and to expose The great scholar F.F. Bruce said it cuts to the innermost recesses of our spiritual being and brings up the subconscious motives to light. Do you ever read the Bible and sometimes feel horrible? I mean, that's good in one sense. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm just saying that's part of its purpose, to bring conviction. And it's the word of God that cuts deep down into the soul. And most of us don't know our hearts. That's why we need the word of God to expose it. Jeremiah 17 in verse 9, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things. And beyond human cure, who really knows how bad it is, says the New Living Translation. You don't know how bad your heart is, but God does, and the word of God penetrates deep down into the bottom of, you, uh, of the very soul, your inner being, and exposes what's there, and it's often not a pretty picture. But sometimes before you're healed, you have to be cut, so says the surgeon. Jeremiah says the word of God is like a fire in that it burns, like a hammer in that it break, breaks rocks, And now, like a sword, in that it cuts deep into our souls. And then notice this, verse 13, nothing is hidden from his sight. It's not just in us, it's 
everything outside of us. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight, but everything is uncovered, exposed, laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must one day give an account. Nothing is hidden. And so the writer of Hebrews says you need to remember what he says and what he sees. It's important because one day you will give an account to this God whose word knows you better than you know yourself and who sees everything hidden, um, revealed at any time, sees it all. Where do you go to hide from God? He's omnipresent, everywhere present at once. It's impossible. And what can be a great encouragement to the person struggling out in the middle of nowhere is a great discouragement from the person trying to hide their sins. How useless it is to hide from God. How insulting is our hypocrisy when we try to make it out to others then we are better than we really are when God knows our heart. By the way, there are some Christian ministers who just love to, to condemn others. They'll take the word of God, which is righteous and true, and use it like a sword to make others feel miserable. Now, the proper preaching of the word of God through the spirit of God is gonna bring conviction to the heart, yes. But when I hear something, someone so flippantly using the word of God to condemn others, I'm thinking that person must never read the Bible themselves. Because when you read the Bible yourself, God says, hey, I wanna show you something. I know you're studying for a sermon, and that's all well and good, but let me show you something. This is for you, not them. Ouch. How can I be arrogant and proud when my heart is revealed, laid bare, and open to the God who knows me? I need grace, and I need mercy, and that's my only hope. But I love this about God. If the first picture is sobering, the second picture is encouraging. Verse 14, this is the picture of a high priest at the mercy seat. The high priest at the mercy seat. Listen to verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, and by the way, this is what distinguishes the book of Hebrews from being so different than almost any other New Testament book, this emphasis of, of Jesus being the high priest. It's been mentioned a couple times, but now the writer is going to dig into this topic, and he's going to expose it from different angles. Jesus is better than the Aaronic high priest. He's, he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's not a human priest. He is, but he's also a divine priest and he'll live forever get a picture of your high priest at the mercy seat if the first portrait was alarming and dreadful this one is hopeful and encouraging therefore since we have verse 14 a high priest who has ascended into heaven has gone through the heavens literally Jesus the son of God let us hold firmly to the faith we possess or profess. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been there, (laughs) tempted in every way, just as we are tempted, yet he never sinned. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Sometimes the high priest was just called the great priest, and at other times he was called the high priest, the highest of all priests, but rarely, perhaps never, was the high priest called the great high priest. But that's Jesus. And he's far better than anything the Old Testament had for a priest. He is great. He's great because he's in heaven. He's seated in heaven. I love the concept that the high priest was an unusual individual because he would go into the Holy of Holies. Remember that building in the, in the Old Testament? Actually had two compartments, the holy place, and then in the back, the Holy of Holies. And the priest would come in with the blood of the sacrifice into that holy place, and there would be the candle that's always burning and the table of showbread and the incense. And they would come in, and they would minister and change that. But only the high priest could pass through the big curtain with pictures of of angels, cherubim on them. Only the high priest could pass through, and he could only do it once a year, and he had to have blood first for his own sin as a sacrifice, and then blood for the sins of the people, and they would tie a rope on his ankle because if he died, if he did something wrong and died in the holy place, nobody was going to get him. (laughs) They'd pull him out. I don't know if it ever happened. And he would have bells on the bottom of his robe so they could say, Yeah, he's still kicking. Hasn't died yet. I mean, this was serious. But Jesus doesn't pass through a curtain. No, he's a great high priest. He passes through the clouds. And he's going into heaven. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father at his own throne called the mercy seat, which was that solid gold plate on top of the ark under the cherubim, the mercy seat, also called the throne of grace. He's a great high priest because he's the son of God. Did you notice that? He's not just a human being. He's the son of God. That shows his deity. But he can empathize with us because he is human. He is fully human. Chapters 3 and 4 of Hebrews went at great lengths to tell us how human Jesus really is, yet he never sinned. And it's hard for us to comprehend weak humanness, humanness without sinfulness. And yet we've got to grapple with that because that's Jesus. You know, sympathy is where I might say to you, I see your pain, but empathy is, I feel your pain. I've been there, right? If I talk to someone who has lost a spouse, I can see their pain. I can understand. I can be sympathetic, but I'm not empathetic 
in the full sense of the term because I haven't experienced the same pain. But when you have, you can comfort others with the comfort that God has given you. Right? And Jesus is empathetic because he, maybe not every single little temptation, but every range of temptation that is out there in the human experience, Jesus faced. And yet, there was no sin. So he's human and he's holy. <laughs> it's, a per- it's beautiful. It's perfect. Our Christ. I love the fact that after <clears throat> the word of God shows that it brings conviction to the soul, he, the, the, the writer of Hebrews takes us right away to see Jesus as a high priest and merciful at that. While the word of God will convict me, the Son of God will save me. And he's one and the same. And he who cuts heals. And perhaps one of the greatest words in verse 14 is simply this. We have a high priest. Are you searching for Jesus? Have you ever turned from your sin and by faith believed in him? Cast your heart and soul upon him? Received him? All these terms are talking about the same thing. Be uh, theological terms, regenerated, born again. If you have trusted Christ with an honest heart and turned from your sin, the Bible guarantees that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. You have Jesus. Now, why would you want to lose that? The writer says to these people considering walking away from Christ and going back to a works religion. We have Christ. I was studying this this week, and the weirdest thing came into my mind. Some of you might appreciate this. A man by the name of Harry Leach in the early 1970s was a furniture entrepreneur. And he took over a small outlet called Robinson's Furniture and changed the name to Joshua Door. Anyone remember Joshua Door, Metro Detroit? Yeah, there's six of us. <laughs> this probably won't go over very well. You're going to have to look this up. <clears throat> so I was thinking, they had one of the most iconic and endearing jingles, sales ad song, that Metro Detroit has ever seen. I grew up there in the 70s. I'm in college. I'm coming back on I-275, and there's this huge sign for Joshua Door, kind of like the art van of the day. And the song, the jingle, went like this. You've got an uncle in the furniture business, Joshua Door. I wish I could sing it. I, I thought about showing it to you, but, you know, that's, man, that's a bit crazy. The whole premise of the jingle was this. You've got someone on the inside, right? And it's not just a friend. You've got an uncle. You're going to get a family discount. And the song was so well done in the day, and it raised to a pitch and had all kinds of singers coming into the warehouse and dancing. I mean, everyone was singing the jingle. Yes. 
<laughs> if I could sing, I was going to do that, but thank you, Craig. Now, where are the dancers and everything else? <laughs> well, I didn't know about the sad side of the story, which was to make his furniture business grow quick, he got a loan from the mob, and uh, Henry Leach, in March of 1974, was found murdered, um, just about the, uh, the same time that some other mob hits had taken place in Detroit. So he didn't quite come through uh, for all of those people. But I thought about, you know, you have a Savior in heaven. And he's not just a friend, he's family. You've got someone on the inside, friends in high places. You have a high priest. Where is he? In heaven. Who is he? The Son of God. But he's fully human, so he knows what you're going through, and he has a place called the throne of grace. I love it. If it would have been the throne of justice, I'm not so sure I would have been compelled to go. By the way, there is a throne Revelation 20, called the great white throne of judgment. But this is the throne of grace. And I can come to that and find grace. Therefore, and we move on in our reading of the scripture. Therefore, verse 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. By the way, this is the second time he's given this, uh, this encouragement. Let us hold fast to the profession of our faith or to what we have professed. That's verse 14. And now, let us come boldly to the throne. We are to come with confidence and not fear. Yeah, but the word has just exposed my sinful heart. And God, the see, he, he sees everything that I do. That's right. But now he begs you to come for the God who knows you better than you know yourself died for you to save you. And when the word of God convicts you, the son of God saves you. Come with confidence because you have a high priest. And it's the place to find mercy. It's the mercy seat. The mercy seat. Again, taking off the picture from the Old Testament temple. And finally, it's a place to find grace. It's the grace place. When you pray and go to your high priest as your go-between, when you pray... You're in the grace zone. You're at the grace place. And you can find mercy. So think of it. What God says in his word, verse 12, what God sees in our heart, verse 13, and what God gives from his throne, verse 16, speaks of grace and mercy to us all. God's word, God's sight, God's son, God's throne, it's all there. And he woos us to come. 
I enjoyed watching the TV series West Wing. Uh, didn't watch it when it was actually being um, shown, but um, I enjoyed going through it afterward. It's the fictional Bartlett White House. And in one episode back in 2006, when it was originally aired, uh, they were preparing for an election. And Leo McGarry was chief of staff, played by the veteran actor John Spencer. But his staff was uncertain about what was going to happen in the election and what the other side was doing, and there was a lot of mystery in it all. And when they expressed their uncertainty about it, Leo quoted a lyric Roman poet of the first century, Horace, actually first century B.C., Omnis una mune naxa, which means the same night awaits us all. I don't know what Horace used it for. The TV series used it about an uncertain election. But the Bible has that same phrase it's appointed unto man once to die, and the Omnes una mune noxa, the same fate awaits us all. You're going to stand before your Creator. And you'll either be naked and exposed and your sin open to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do, or you will by faith trust Jesus and He will cleanse you from all your sin. And you will stand in that day perfect because you are clothed with the righteous robe of Jesus. Choose this day whom you will worship. Let's pray. Father, so bring thoughts from your word, but delightful hope. And there's no good news until we understand in the context of the bad news what could happen and why God's love is so startling because Jesus died for sinners and rebels like us. He didn't come to call the righteous to repentance. No, it's those who realize that they need God, need forgiveness. There's no way for us to achieve it in ourselves. But Jesus has done it for us. From the cross to the grave to the throne, he says, come, and I will forgive. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, why don't you do so today? Will you? Say, I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. I, I need to be forgiven. Jesus says, whoever calls on my name, whoever comes to me, I'll never cast them aside. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Take that promise to heart. It's a living promise relevant for today. And then live your life at the throne of grace and never forget your high priest. Let's take a moment to pray, shall we? Heads bowed, eyes closed. Do business with God.
Lord, may we always remember today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In Christ's name, amen.